This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon and welcome. A draft of long-awaited updated standards for long-term care uh, was released late last week. And the takeaway is this. Had these standards been in place already, thousands of lives could have been saved. To date, 16,000 nursing home residents have died of COVID, and that's more than half of all deaths. The proposed new guidelines are focused on providing care and quality of life for residents, as well as a positive work environment, which includes fair pay and benefits and appropriate staffing levels. Now, the standards also reflect the resident's right to live with a certain degree of risk if they choose, which means if they're prone to falls, uh, they can say no to restraints. Uh, or if they want to leave the pres- premises while there's a lockdown to see family, they should have the right to do so. Um, so these are standards which would not be mandatory, but would be used to accredit homes. And as we know, the history of this thing is that rules are not enforced and bad actors go unpunished. So is this a whole new leaf or is this going to be yet another piece of paper that gathers dust? The numbers to call 416-360-0740, toll free 1-866-740-4740. And now I'm joined by the Zoomer Squad, David Kravitz, Vice President of Zoomer Media and Chief Membership Officer at CARP, Peter Mugridge, Senior Editor of Zoomer Magazine, and Bill Van Gorder, Chief Operating Officer and Chief Policy Officer at CARP. Hey, guys. Hi, Libby. Hi, Hi Libby. Uh, Bill, let us begin with you. So uh, what in these new proposed standards caught your eye? Well, there's nothing new in these proposed standards. Uh, your earlier comments were uh, dead on. No new ideas. Uh, they're, and they're not mandatory. Uh, we're not, we're seeing only a part of the standards and studies that are being proposed. The national standards uh, um, for long-term care are still going to be looked at by three other groups. This is only the first of three draft uh, reports, it's a lot of talk, a lot of uh, a, a lot of committees, and still uh, no no action. And you know, even their re- repeated recommendations about a new way of genuinely uh, being homes that that people want to live in, governments continue to renovate and build using the old warehouse model of. Uh, long-term care. So uh, we're disappointed. This is so slow. We're disappointed that there's no real action, and it's going to take at least until this time next year before any kind of final recommendations will even be out, let alone implemented. Yeah, and and not to mention, it's a provincial responsibility. David, but is there, I mean, a turning point is probably too strong, but is there, do you, do you begin to see uh, a, a small turning when it comes to this idea of what they call patient-centered care, which of course involves like completely reorganizing how they deliver the care, but do you see like a glimmer here? Yes, I, I actually do. And I think that the idea that this is a home, um, the word nursing home, which we've used forever, contains the word home, um, is an interesting uh, idea as a statement of philosophy. And I think the real problem here is, can I put on this document a burden which I cannot reasonably ask it to bear? As a statement of strategy and 42 pages of recommendations, there's nothing in here to, to, to disagree with. 
uh, as a blueprint for execution, given the people that are running the system and how long they take, uh, I think there's everything to despair of because good luck bringing any of this in. There is also one sort of problem they finesse here, and that is if it's really my home or it's a quasi version of my home and I have a certain amount of independence and I can make certain decisions, what happens in the case of a pandemic where those decisions you know, impact other people that are living there? And what happens to the legal liability of the operators, be they profit or, or not for profit? That's going to be a big stumbling block that's going to take a lot of uh, work multiplied by 10 different provinces with maybe 10 different ideas. So we have a long way to go here. It, but I do like the underlying philosophy of finally placing the patient at the center of things. Uh it's interesting you mentioned legal liability because uh, here in Ontario, anyway, that the government has removed most of the legal liability from the homes. Uh, so, I mean, there are a couple of cases uh, that where there are lawsuits and perhaps they meet the elevated standard. But I, that's one of the issues is that no matter how bad things get, nobody seems to pay the price, Peter. Peter? Yeah. Yeah. The, the, uh, the, this uh, document, um, it doesn't really get into any of that. It just, it, it, I think it's important because it, it sort of, maybe it represents, as you say, a small shift in our way of thinking. For years, we've just thought of um, older residents as, you know, people who go to these warehouses and they're built around the routines of workers the uh you know the um routines of management the convenience of 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 workers and not about, about the patients themselves or the families and i and i think this is a big um a change in viewpoint and and if that's the only thing it accomplishes because neither bill nor david seem very confident that it'll accomplish anything um down the road um if if it if it accomplishes one thing and that's to shift the notion that these are people these are people with uh, rights these are people with wants and they sh- these these are people that should be respected and and if if it accomplishes anything um i hope it accomplishes that yeah it, it's uh it's very interesting this morning i was talking to our fill-in host on the morning zoom liz west and uh her her dad it's not even in a long-term care home. He's in a retirement home, uh, I guess, because there's no room in long-term care. And it, it, she's beside herself because she doesn't understand why she can't take him home because they're in some kind of lockdown or visit him. And, uh, you know, I mean, multiply that by thousands of residents, Bill. Yeah, Libby, I, I think that underlines one of the, the real failings in this report. There's very little reference to family and volunteer caregiver uh, needs. They talk about the residents themselves, uh, members of the workforce, leaders, administrators. It's still a top-down approach rather than saying what do the residents need, what do the clients need, and build from there. We still have They still have their priorities upside down. David, you know, uh, I've seen lots of reporting on models where it's different, uh, you know, notably in Denmark. The homes are smaller. They're in the community, uh, which is a completely different approach. There are a couple here that are kind of uh, pilot projects, and they require completely different training of the staff. But, uh, you know, at least in the newer homes, people are getting private rooms. Do you think that this type of care they're talking about can be delivered at least in the places that are being built now? I I think it could be. I think the problem is, is retrofitting it into the institutions we have. And I think it's important to realize that the existing system, with very few exceptions, is really an outgrowth of the hospital system. It's really a glorified hospital. With, with, uh, you're going to live there for longer than you would if you went into a hospital, let's say, for an operation and came home again. And the hospital 
bed is not your home. You're going in for some other treatment. You're hopefully not going to be in there for very long, and then you're going to go back home again. And so the emphasis in a hospital setting is on medical care, uh, administration of Medicaid, prescription medications, diet, food, recovery, constant checkups by the doctors till they can send you home. That's what the long-term care home's underlying philosophy is. You're a patient. You're not somebody that's really, we'll tell you who can see you or not. We'll tell you when you can go in and out. It's not really your home. And to suddenly make it your home, the implications of this, uh, who's going to do that? How much staff do you need in excess to what you have now when people are leaving the profession, the, the personal care workers are leaving? There's a shortage. Now you're going to need way more than you had before. And as you said, Lib, you're going to need different training. And it's not so much I don't think it will happen, you know, per Peter's comment, but quite that drastic, Peter. I'm mm. saying it's just going to take a long time, and it's going to be a lot more complicated And I don't really put the burden of all that time and complexity on this report, which is really just a a statement of strategy and a welcome one. But, man, to get this executed, we shouldn't be naive about uh, how long this is going to take. You know, David, it's really interesting that you mentioned the hospital system uh, because I I was thinking of that. And the hospital system is struggling with those issues as well. And, uh, you know, I, I spent, um, what, eight days in hospital last, uh, last year. And so they're coming to a certain realization that, gee, you know, um, these patients are sick. Maybe it'd be good if they got some sleep and maybe it's hard when you have full on fluorescent lights on all night (laughs) and the nurse comes in the middle of the night to wake them up and take their vitals, whether they need it or not. And there are rounds at at, at six o'clock in the morning, but they, they can't seem to, and, and even in, um, they did change a little bit when I had cancer treatment. After I had cancer treatment, it used to be that uh, like everything was organized according to each particular doctor's schedule and, and patients yep. Yep. would have to come multiple times and wait. And then, you know, the light bulb went off and they said, gee, why don't we have a clinic where all the doctors are there and the patient has to come once? Uh, duh. <laughs> it makes too much sense. What's the matter with you? It's too logical. And, and, um, you know, I, again, you know, I, I was in hospital last year, so they haven't made that much progress. They're still waking you up in the middle of the night and doing rounds and, and all of that. And I, I don't want to say anything bad. I got great care. I'm very grateful. But, um, you know, it's, it's just, I guess, this old way of thinking about healthcare. Completely. And, and that old way, um, so if, if we are at a turning point here, um, do we turn completely away from that old way for, for long-term care homes? Can we? Do we have the vision to do that? Or do we just sort of, as David likes to say, put a Band-Aid on the existing system? And, um, you know, that's where, that's where the big uh, change with um, the patient-centered care comes in. And, and if we truly believe that, then we'll, this is a turning point. But if it's just window dressing, then then it's going to be another Band-Aid solution, I think. Well, or no solution at yeah. all. Yeah. Let me give the numbers out again if people want to comment if they have loved ones in long-term care or friends and um, what they're thinking about all this. The numbers four one six three six zero zero seven forty, 360 Forty. We are talking about the draft of these new standards for long-term care, which uh, were released last week, which don't really contain anything new, but it is a new way of thinking for the way that care is organized. And the other thing that I want to get to in there that's really quite eye-popping is uh, they said, hey, you know, if this had been in place... Thousands of people who died could have been saved. Uh, what do you make of that, David? I don't know whether um, there's a direct cause and effect um, from, you know, page so-and-so, point so-and-so, uh, to how many people could have been saved. But there's no question that uh, had some of these uh, policies been in effect, there many lives could have been saved. 
But there is a further strategy report coming out about infection prevention and control um, that I think will be more uh, directly applicable to that because a lot of lives were lost because at the very beginning especially, uh, and then in that terrible summer where they didn't do any inspections and they didn't get themselves ready for wave two, um, the spread of a very uh, toxic, if, if that's the right word, or lethal uh, variation of COVID, unlike perhaps Omicron right now, but that spread was allowed to go way beyond what should have been. Inspections were lax. Many homes had no proper infection controls or even a uh, system to do it or qualified people to do it. Um, it was it was a mess from end to end. And I don't know that um, that would have been solved by this, but I think uh, the further strategy document is coming on infection control, and I'll be interested to see, you know, what what's in that one. Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, and then there's the whole jurisdictional issue, right? So these are national standards, but this is a, a provincial responsibility. Uh, what about all that, Bill? Well, it's going to require the federal government to put money behind the recommendations, and they've shown no indication at this point to to want to do that for long-term care at all. Uh, what CARP has been saying is we believe that the whole discussion of the needed more financial support to the provinces to implement better practices uh, has to be taken out of the Canada Health Act and what we need is a separate long-term care act for the entire country. And that, that suggestion it continues to fall on, on deaf ears. I've seen uh, no real uptake on agreeing with us. But unless we, we focus, it's going to get lost again. Uh, COVID is going to be over and we're going to go back to where we were because we still are talking about a top-down, uh, uh, top-down system that doesn't really take care of what their residents or their or their families need. So, so whether whether or not the federal government uh, has the intestinal fortitude to really push for this change, what CARP has said to the provincial governments is, we want you to cooperate with the federal government. Uh, we want you to work with them. And if you, if both will work together, then we will put our advocacy behind, uh, those, uh, levels of government that won't cooperate with, uh, with one another. It's the only way. The reason, one of the major reasons that the Scandinavian countries have a better track record is because they put a higher percentage of their money into uh, long-term care uh, facilities and, and programs and home care and less into supporting traditional warehousing of people in hospital-like facilities. It, it almost seems like we're a catch-22 because, uh, you know, even to the extent that we were on the way to a more community-based model uh, in healthcare in general, the the takeaway from the pandemic seems to be we're underfunding our hospitals. And if the reaction to that from government is, uh, well, we're going to spend more money on our hospitals because that's the problem that's right in front of everybody's face, then, you know, it seems to me that this gets pushed back and pushed back, even though, you know, like they, I, I keep seeing so many announcements about this bit of money here and that bit of money there, Peter. Yeah, and, and it, it keeps getting pushed back and um, sort of the, the brain power is going to solving other issues and, and not being devoted to to the long-term care industry where, where we need some kind of vision. We need some kind of oh, champion out there to, uh, like, we need these these sort of uh, scientific roundtables. Dr. Sinha is one, one name that comes to mind, uh, Samir, Dr. Samir Sinha, but we need more like him. We need, we need to sort of... Uh, Sort of engender that kind of creative thinking, and um, I think a lot of that is going to the, um, you know, the hospital system and not and and the general healthcare system and not to long term care, and so it has to suffer as a second or third cousin to uh, hospitals and doctors. 
But the other the other thing, if I may say, and Dr. Sin is intimately involved with this document yeah. that we're looking at. He's a chairman. Yeah. Or, he's a chairman, on this, yeah. So, but yeah. what's missing in the whole thing is any lack of concrete, measurable, declared goals and standards with a timeline attached. And so what happens is documents like this that are very good, they enable the government to take refuge in high-sounding, noble intent, stable, patient-centered is such a seductively wonderful thing. And a year is going to go by before people comment on this document, let alone implement it. Instead, somebody should come forward and say, 24 months from now, we want every single patient to have four hours of care per day, and it's going to take X thousand workers to do that, and here's what it's going to cost, and here's how we're going to get them. Well, uh, They never I... want to do that. They always want the same, you know, vague, abstract statements of good mm-hmm. intent, and that's what's uh, why we're in this jackpot. I'm just trying to remember. I think there is a deadline here in Ontario, but it's pretty far off. I think it's 2024, 2025, something like that. Right. The four and hours of care. I have to look it up. Gonna, yeah, and how are they going to get there? I mean, yeah. where are these... Uh, during his very brief period with uh, as Minister of Long-Term Care, Rod Phillips did have a conversation with Bill and me uh, and uh, our colleague Anthony Quinn, and he talked about specifics about training and we need more PSWs. Here's where we're going to get them. We got a pilot. He did have some specifics in mind. That's all gone up in the air. I never hear, heard anything about that anymore. But unless somebody can come out and say, here is what the deliverables are, which is routine in every aspect, the other, every other aspect of our life except the government. It's routine to talk about this is what's going to be delivered. This is when it's going to be delivered. Here's how we're going to get there. This is just more, you know, nice, nice statements of, 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 you know, noble intent, which are hard to argue with, but there's no real uh, holding their feet to the fire for outcomes. And I think until that happens, you're not going to see any progress. Hmm. One light at the uh, at the end of the tunnel is that Dr. Senna has asked CARP, has asked us to be a part of the review over the next few months of the report. And certainly uh, CARP's uh, point of view will be exactly as David uh, described, and that's for action now, not planned for five years from now. Hmm. Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, we seem to be so good at uh, putting together reports, and uh, on, on, in terms of action, I'd have to say not so much. Well, that's why we're where we are because it's easy to identify the ideal. I mean, what are they going to do? They're going to come out and report and say, "Let's fix long-term care by placing the patient at the bottom of long-term care. Let's make it entirely with, about the providers, and let's treat the residents like." Uh, like uh, they're at the bottom of the top. Nobody's going to come out and say that. They know what the right thing is to say. They know what the right thing sounds like. Um, you know, even the idea of patient-centered, well, is, is he a patient or is he a resident or she? Um, so there, there's a limited amount of uh, specifics here, and it's, it makes it very easy for the bureaucrats that have, frankly, not distinguished themselves as having the ability to execute well makes it easy for them to retreat behind verbiage and seductive, attractive, fine-sounding verbiage and never come to grips with deliverables. Uh, now, yeah, you know, the, li- the deliverables sound so, uh, so doable. We're talking about a warm, caring environment that feels like a home, staff that know their residences and know the families, Schedules that are based on the resident's preferences and needs, not the not the system, and activities and relationships among them all that bring them joy and, and happiness and content in their latter latter years. It sounds so simple and should be uh, should be simple. And why we can't come to grips with that is beyond me. 
Uh, you know, it's it's interesting. One of the things, I mean, certainly in, in converses, passing conversations I've had with friends, not that we're really doing anything about it, is you keep talking, well, you know, maybe uh, when we get to a point where it's it's hard for us to take care of certain things, you know, we, we uh, sort of do something like a co-op and we hire people together. To help us out, you know, whether it's uh, um, somebody coming in to, you know, help people get dressed or personal service or uh, driving us or that kind of thing. Uh, Do you see a groundswell of that or is that also kind of just talk? We're we're seeing in in CARP across the country a a real interest in what most people call co-housing. But it's a group of uh, people uh, living together in a uh, in a more home-like uh, setting with the, with the bringing in the care and attention uh, that they need. And you know, one of the biggest problems with people having more of those is building codes, provincial and municipal building codes, won't allow them to have that kind of living uh, living arrangement. Uh, and uh, you know, a simple change in those uh, codes, uh, we think, would have many, many more co-housing arrangements happening right across the country. Okay, we are starting to run out of time. Uh, let's begin with Peter as we go around. Uh, what would you like to leave us with on this? Um, just that, uh, you know, the system is broken. It's been completely um, exposed by the recent waves of the pandemic and there's we can't go back to um what we were doing before we can't try to re- repair what we have now it's going to take some visionary to step forward some maybe carp uh to push this idea to politicians that we can't go backwards we have to go we have to move laterally on this move in different directions and uh really think this out before we just start piling money and support the old system again. Bill. Yeah, Peter's right. In order for a long-term care setting to really become a home for residents, we've got tremendous amount of work to be done to transform that experience so that uh, their daily life is what they want it to be, not what some system tells them it should be. David. I spent three afternoons last week talking to a total of about 100 CARP members in a three nationwide Zoom calls to find out what their worries were for the coming year. And healthcare was number one, and long-term care was widely discussed. And the feeling of uh, hostility toward the powers that be, the despair of ever wanting to go into such a facility suggests to me that the creative ideas is going to come from outside the system. Our our members are talking, as Bill said, about co-ops and seniors housing and innovative arrangements and more money for at-home caregivers and aging in place, living in place. Um, the pressure there, I don't think there's enough uh, creative or administrative energy in the system mm-hmm. to get the reforms done quickly enough. And I think it's uh, they will come, but I think there's going to be an awful lot of energy outside the system um, to make things better. Okay. Wow. I'm sure we'll be discussing this again soon. In the meantime, thank you so much, Bill Van Gorder, David Kravitz, and Peter Mugrit. Thanks, Libby. Libby. Right. Thanks, Libby. We are going to take a break. And when we come back, today is a day a lot of people have been looking forward to after a month of most everything being shut down. We are starting to reopen. You can go to a restaurant. You can go to the gym. You can go to the movies. Uh, we will check in with that when we come back. Before we go to break, the number is 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. We'll be right back. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Schneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Well, today is the day many of us have been waiting for. We can go back to restaurants, gyms, and movie theaters, at least on a limited basis. So what do you think? Are you raring to go? 
Are you holding back a bit, maybe? The numbers to call, 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And it's a big relief for business owners, though for many it won't be enough to keep them going. So right now, I would like to welcome Alida Solomon, owner and chef at Tutimati Restaurant in Toronto, and Victor Valley, general manager of the Scotiabank Theatre Toronto. Hi, and thank you so much for joining us. Hey, how, how are you? I'm fine. How are you? Excited. Excited? We're all been excited to be opening up doors to our employees and guests coming in today. So, uh, yeah, can't wait. Okay, now uh, one thing, both both of you are right downtown in Toronto, and uh, a lot of the downtown is fairly hollowed up and uh, hollowed out in terms of, uh, you know, usually a lot of people work there, but not so much lately. Yeah, the downtown's become pretty quiet. Um, uh, Tutti Mati is at Adeline and Spadina, so we have really felt um, the last two years has been really hard on the entire neighborhood. Um, and as a collective, I think we're all just so excited to be open again. Uh, and start to see some some movement downtown, which would be really nice. Mm-hmm. What about you, Victor? You know what? We were used to seeing a lot of people before, and then the closures happened. But, you know, just before we closed down, Spider-Man opened up, and we saw that there was, you know, a real appetite uh, to watch movies on the big screen. So a lot of guests did come out and enjoy uh, Spider-Man, which was great. And then we also had the Canadian premiere of The Matrix Resurrections, in which Keanu Reeves was uh, at our theater. So it was pretty cool. Wow. Yeah. Alida, um, so are you uh, reservations? Uh, how's it looking? So we, um, we, Chuti Mati was open six days a week, uh, say two years ago. So we would be open five days for lunch and six dinners a week. Um, due to the lack of business downtown during the day, unfortunately, we don't have enough crowd to fill the restaurant at lunch. So we are remaining closed for now uh, at lunchtime until, until people start to feel more comfortable downtown. And you start to see some, the offices start to fill up. Uh, which is which would be phenomenal because Chuti had become like this hub for the last 19 years for a, a lot of the creative uh, talent in Toronto, whether you're an architect or in animation. We had a, a great crowd. So we're staying closed now at lunch until we can start to feel, probably I'm hoping by spring we start to see some motion in the office. And then for dinner right now, we're open Wednesday to Saturday um, before Christmas. Uh, up until December 14th, we had started to open for lunch and dinner, um, but we started to see, see a decline on the, around the 14th of December when things started to get um, a little tense in the city. So we're, right now we're open Wednesday to Saturday uh, for dinner service only. Well, uh, I mean, the other thing is that in an ordinary year, this would probably be the quietest time of year. Right. We also have, like, we had Winterlicious, which was great, um, which the city had done. And uh, so we're just hoping that, you know, we're hoping to see people come out who want to eat, who, who have missed dining, who have missed hospitality, um, and we're and we're only allowed to be at fifty percent capacity, I believe, until the end of the month, until the government decides otherwise, um, which is still very hard on us because we still have to pay uh, full rent downtown. So um, we're just hoping that they loosen up the restrictions uh, and we start to move forward in a positive direction. Mm-hmm. Uh, I I have to say I know that uh, you know having a lunch out is one of the things that my husband really likes. And uh, I, I bet that today uh, I was showing him stuff in the fridge for lunch. And uh, he sort of said, mm, I think I'm going out. So, uh, so yeah. And uh, I can tell you that, that personally for me, I have a tennis game tomorrow and that's the first thing. Awesome. And, and then we'll, uh, we'll look at restaurants, of course. And uh, in terms of movie theaters, Victor, what are you expecting? So we're opening up with 50% capacity. There will be a little bit of social distancing occurring in the theater. So when someone purchases a ticket, uh, the system will automatically block one seat to the left and to the right after the purchase is made. Uh, business will be a little bit slow uh, as we start to open up. And the newest product that we have is Scream. Uh, which just by looking at the sales today, it's like, not bad. It will be our number one movie today at this theater. Um, so, yeah, I mean, uh, you know, I think everyone deserves to, to leave their homes and go out for a couple of hours and enjoy a dinner and, you know, in a movie somewhere, right? And with Valentine's Day a couple of weeks away and hopefully get this ball rolling, right? Right. Yeah. Uh, there was, I, what, what was the thing? Because for a while uh, you could go to the movies, but you couldn't eat the popcorn. So w- 
what's yeah. wh- what's the deal with eating in <laughs> your seat and masking? <laughs> yeah, that uh, that was that was tough, right? Uh, you know, I have a lot of friends and family that, and I mean, who doesn't enjoy eating popcorn and having drinks and the chocolate and candy while watching a film for a couple of hours, right? So when that when we weren't permitted to do that, that was a uh, you know tough on everyone, right? But now, for sure, as soon as we open up at one thirty today, yes, people will be able to go to our concession stand, buy popcorn drinks, their favorite candy, go inside uh, the auditorium, and you know, and escape from all this for a couple of hours. So yeah, and they have to be masked in the theater yeah. except when they're eating, right? Correct. Yes, in the common areas, everyone. So let's talk about as soon as you walk inside the building, guests will be required to wear masks and present their QR code and uh, photo ID. In the common areas, guests are required to wear a mask. And when inside the auditorium is when they'll be permitted to remove their mask to consume their food and beverages. Hmm. And uh, um, Alida, so, uh, you know, again, with your limited service and the limited capacity, would you say what percentage of of normal are you at in terms of your revenue? And, and, uh, you know, is that enough? Um, I mean, we're, we won't be close to what our usual revenue is until we're able to be at full capacity. I mean, unfortunately, um, people are still very cautious about eating out. And we're just, I mean, our, our books filled up with regulars. The moment I opened up Wednesday's re- reservations, I got emails and phone calls and people so excited to, to come back out. But it was the same crowd of people who were comfortable pre-Christmas uh, that have started to come out. But I just say to people, you know, if you're not comfortable being in a space where people are moving around, um, you know, they're eating and you're sitting two tables away from someone else. As restaurant owners, we, you know, we are doing our best to make everybody comfortable. All our staff are masked and waiting for you with smiles behind those masks. But we also have to just remember to be kind to each other because this is, it's, it's, um, it's a, diff- a very different kind of hospitality that we're dealing with right now. It's not what we're used to. So I just say to everybody, come out, have a great time, enjoy yourselves. But just remember to be kind to each other. Hmm. Yeah. And some people obviously will still be nervous about going out. Some people are ready to go. Uh, Victor, what would you like to leave us with? Um, you know what? We got Matrix Resurrections. We got Scream, like I said, Spider-Man. I think, uh, you know, going out for a couple of hours with your significant other, family, friends to to enjoy uh, some sense of normalcy. Is, is, you know, we all need it. We all deserve it. So, yeah. Get out to the movies. <laughs> and, and Alida, last 20 seconds to you. So looking forward to being back uh, at work. We have all, me, the staff and I are just looking forward to seeing, uh, you know, people and people excited to eat. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, a, it's Toronto and we just need to start to get back to, uh, to normal and by, by being hospitable to each other. And I'm really, really excited. Okay, well, I'm glad to hear it. Uh, all the conversation sounds really positive, so uh, that's good to hear. For a change, thank you so much, Alida Solomon and Victor Valley. Thank you. Thank you. Take care. Thanks. Bye. Bye bye. We're going to take another break, and when we come back, boy, that huge truck convoy in Ottawa. Uh, The protest started one way. It's going off in all kinds of different directions. We'll uh, drill down on it when we come back. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. The Prime Minister has dismissed the huge protest in Ottawa as the work of a small fringe, but it has captured the attention of the world with the likes of mega celebrities like Elon Musk even reacting to it on social media with support. Now, the protests have been characterized as mostly peaceful with some very ugly, notable exceptions. The desecration of the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier and the Terry Fox statue, swastikas being carried around Confederate flags, and an incident where uh, staff and clients at a soup kitchen were harassed by demonstrators demanding food from them because uh, the restaurant's that are open and many in the neighborhood have chosen to close have mask mandates. Well, as you heard in Bob's news, traffic is jammed and Ottawa residents feel like they are under siege. So what is the upshot? Uh, 
the numbers, 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And, you know, it's interesting. Uh, I had a number of calls on Free For All Friday from people who support the protest, and there's nothing wrong with peacefully protesting. That's what our democracy is about. But they said, gee, you people are misrepresenting it. It's all sort of sweetness and light and uh they get mad at us if we report things like uh, dancing on the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier or uh, brandishing swastikas. But anyway, let us go to Bob Richardson, liberal strategist and senior counsel to national public relations, as well as Jason Leader, conservative strategist and president at Enterprise. Hi, guys. Good afternoon. Okay. Hey well, Jason, um, what do you make of the whole thing? Where do you start? Uh, I mean, uh, I will say, uh, you know, I've been, I've had the lucky, uh, I've been able to just turn my TV off a couple of times in the last little bit and get off social media. And I think it's been good for my, so, for my mental sanity. You turn on the TV and you look at this and you just sort of turn it back off. I feel sorry for the people that have been down in downtown, downtown Ottawa, but I will say, um, you know, the people who organized the protest and a lot of the thousands of people that are down there and the thousands of Canadians, tens of thousands of Canadians who probably agree with them mostly say, yeah, we've been inconvenienced too. And, you know, sort of, you know, you, you get some as well. So there is legitimate protest. I will say, I think it's been a, a terrible weekend for my political party, my, the, the, the Conservative Party of Canada. I don't think, um, I think it's, it's stuck between a rock and a hard place on some of those things. And, you know, a lot of the, the what came out of this was pretty predictable. And, you know, you've got an MP who's standing and giving an interview in front of a flag that has a swastika painted on it. You know, it's it's a small one. I, it's not like he was, you know, some backdrop he set, set up. But, you know, that was a predictable sort of kind oh, of... Oh, I missed that. Wait, whoa, whoa, whoa. Was it? Who yeah. was it? My, his name was Michael Cooper. He's an MP from Edmonton. And, you know, he's doing an interview and he's, you know, he's with the CBC or whatever. And he's saying, hey... You know, there's a lot of people here that have come really good people to, you know, say Trudeau's bad and we don't like the mandates and we don't like the, the, the trucker mandate. And, you know, there's a there's a flag behind him that, that has, you know, somebody's hand drawn a, an upside down can you know, flag and a swastika on it. That kind of stuff is predictable with these kinds of uh, events, sadly. And um, I think a lot of Canadians just looked at it. And, and here's the thing. Canadians are really angry. Like there's and public opinion is changing on this. Uh, and I'm, I won't get into it too much, but. Public opinion is changing. People are, are frustrated with restrictions. People are really mad at people who are unvaccinated. People are mad at people who are vaccinated, the unvaccinated. So people are angry. I get that it's, uh, but, you know, this was not a great weekend for my federal political party, I would say. I well, think Bob would probably agree. Well, we are, we'll, we'll get to the uh, effect on the party in a minute. Uh, I have to say the phone lines are, are uh, they're filling up. It's like, no, the protesters, they, they aren't desecrating the tomb of the unknown soldier. Uh, Bob, what's your take on the whole thing? Well, you know, this was supposed to be uh, when it began about concerns related to trucking, and it seems to have evolved into a tantrum not a protest. And it's involved a, you know, a small group of truckers, and I think some of them have legitimate concerns. It's not a concern I share, but their concern is legitimate, and they have a right to protest, and, they, uh, and, they should, and it should be allowed to happen. But this has evolved into a bunch of PPC extremists. Every hard right nut bar from uh, Alberta and Saskatchewan seems to be in Ottawa. White nationalists, Garden variety Trudeau haters and and uh, tier four uh, I would call them tier four CPC MPs ably represented by Michael Cooper, which uh, uh, Jason was just saying. So it's a complete mess. They have no message. They have no exit strategy. And this is a tantrum. It's all the people. It's it's the same people who tantrum every year. And you know what they're tantruming about? They're tantruming. Because Justin Trudeau has won three elections in a row. That's really what they're tantruming about, and they don't like him. And that's what's going on there. And on top of that, their conduct has been appalling. We don't need to go through the whole list. Tomb of the Unknown Soldier, urinating on the Aboriginal uh, monument, uh, blah, blah, blah. You know, it just goes on. One thing I would uh, bring up, and uh, Libby, I know you work in the Parliamentary Press Gallery, and I know, Jason, you know uh, Parliament Hill well. What struck me is this should never be allowed to happen on Wellington Street again. 
There are massive trucks right now sitting within 50 feet of the window of the prime minister's office in what used to be called the Langevin block. Um, that would never be allowed in London or Washington or Paris or anywhere else. It is a massive security breach, and it should never be allowed to happen again. People should be allowed to protest, but we should never allow somebody to take a street like that over uh, in, in what effectively is the parliamentary precinct. Well, it's it is unsafe. This thing has been unfair to Ottawa. It's over the top. It's a tantrum, and it needs to end. Well, uh, that is one of the issues that uh, they've raised. I, I mean, this boggles my mind. I think it's up to $9 million now. Who is sending them all this money? Is it actually going to get distributed to the people protesting? And uh, no wonder some of them are saying they can hear, they can stay indefinitely because uh, if they get some of that cash, it's, uh, it's probably a better payday than working. <laughs> the the Westons the Westons are uh, gonna have a nice uh, a nice month I guess uh, nice nice first quarter uh, yeah uh, listen I, I will say I, I do think like take the extremist real extremist elements out of this and and, and Bob's right this thing this thing attracted every nut bar um, in in the country but I will say like you know I, I public opinion is changing and I uh, like there's a lot of people um, out there in Canada certainly outside of the major cities who are looking at this and saying, you know, it's fine. It's, I'm glad somebody did something. I'm glad somebody like finally said something, you know, because I think, you know, I mean, for the last number of miles now, this is coming from a triple vaxxed guy from Burlington, who, yeah, who you know, like I, I just, I, I've mostly thought our public health restrictions were, were okay and, 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 and needed to save lives. Um, but there is a, a real faction and it's getting, it used to be, you know, sort of five, 10%. Now it's 10, 15, 20, 25 and growing every day that sort of says, okay, enough, enough. We've well, yeah, enough but enough. you know yeah. what? This is coming just at the moment when things are are turning to the extent that we had our top doctor saying we have to learn to live with this. Uh, you know, there's another uh, variant. There's no promises, but I, I'm pretty sure there's not going to be another lockdown no matter what so it's it's kind of to me the timing is weird like i okay you've had enough but but it's kind of turning and uh, I, I yeah i agree with jason our governments are at a step with public opinion on this collectively we need to go back to normal sittings of the legislature and the house of commons and city halls we need to go back to normal rules we need to not be run by the public health karens who uh, who want to regulate every last little thing. I was just outside of the country for three weeks. It is absurd the way we are conducting ourselves here compared to most other jurisdictions on the planet. You know, like debating whether you can have popcorn at a movie is just an absurdity. So all these things like that are making people very, very angry, and they have a right to be very angry. Uh, there is absolutely no reason for the, for the last lockdown in Ontario, not one, uh, and it contributed zero to helping the situation. Oh, well, so, the, I, would, I would disagree with that, but anyway. <laughs> you're, you're, you're welcome to have your opinion um, uh, on it, but I'll, I'll tell you, Libby, a uh, bunch of cities in the U.S. who didn't have the lockdown at the same, uh, in the same period of time also had huge uh, reductions in numbers of people in, in hospitals. So I am just telling you, I think... In what climate? Enough is enough. Okay. It sounds like Bob should be on Parliament. It sounds, it we're, does. We're, we're changing type here today. It, it, it <laughs> does sound like that, but you know, there there are people waiting. So, uh, and uh, folks, callers, if you could keep your comments really brief. Um, let's begin with Victor in Etobicoke. Hi, Victor. Hey, Lily, how you doing? Fine, go ahead. Hey, listen, uh, I got videos from the Capitol when that big riot there last year. If you look at what's going on here, it's the same. Canadians don't do what they do. We are not like that. There are people here, okay, that are making trouble for us. You got to think about that. You got the people, the base in Winnipeg. You got Proud Boys. How do you know they're not here? Uh, they probably are there mixed in with everyone else. Exactly. Thanks. So, why doesn't why doesn't Trudeau whatever get this National Guard get these soldiers out of there before it gets too late? 
Okay. These guys are troublemakers. Okay, yeah, well, uh, clearly some of them are. Let's go to uh, Paul in Markham. Hi, Paul. Oh, hi. I, I have a difficult time with the uh, reporting and the coverage of this whole issue in Ottawa. For instance, you mentioned they're defacing Terry Fox. Since when is uh, hanging Canadian flag on his back and putting Backwards. a hat on his head a defacement? I mean, I, I don't see where this recording is being accurately covered. And where's the what would you like? What would you like to call it? It, it was a sign of respect. Where's the interviewing of, of you know what their focus is? All they're all they're protesting is our freedoms and our rights. Well, yeah. I think yeah. there's a lot of people that were interviewed about this. Allowing government to do whatever they tell us to do. Government's meant to guide our country, not to tell us what to do and how to live our lives. That's why we're in a free nation. Okay, Paul, thanks for that. Um, I'm looking at the clock here. Uh, We have very little time left. We're going to take one more, Daryl, like 20 seconds, please. Okay, I just want to say these people ranting and raving for their freedoms, not to be vaccinated, the people that they're putting at risk are the ones, this generation that actually went and fought and sacrificed for these freedoms. And they're showing no concern for that. Okay. Thank you, Daryl. Okay. Uh, We've got like a a minute, a minute and 20 left. So I'm going to go to our panelists to wrap things up. We didn't even get to the impact on the conservative party, which seems to be all over the map. Jason, uh, what are your thoughts on that very quickly, please? Yeah. Yeah. Just not, not a great weekend for my party, but also not a great weekend for the liberals. And they underestimated what was going to happen in Ottawa this weekend as well. The prime minister got COVID, which isn't a bad thing. I'm not saying he's evil. I'm not saying he was, you know, whatever. I'm just saying we're in a different phase of this. And I think they're starting to, they're starting to realize that they might've miscalculated on some of the things. Their core support is really solid. And Aaron O'Toole is yeah, sorry, Aaron O'Toole is what? We lost that. Having a, having, having a really hard time managing his caucus. It's all very difficult for my party, but everybody in Ottawa got a little bit of surprise with how, uh, how visceral this thing was over the weekend, for sure. Bob, you've called it a, a tantrum. I mean, are, are people going to leave? Like, what happens next? Are, well, if, are... they, if, they, if they don't leave, we, should be, we need to move in and move them out. Uh, enough is enough. They've made their point. Uh, you don't get to own an entire street in front of our parliament buildings. You don't get to take over uh, national monuments. You don't get to do a whole variety of things. That has nothing to do with a freedom of speech. That has everything to do with disrespect and stupidity. So uh, we need to clean them out, get this thing back uh, to a, a normal state. They've made their point. Uh, time to move on. Okay. Uh, thank you so much, Jason Leader and Bob Richardson. We've only uh, scratched the surface on this. <laughs> Thanks a lot. And I was nice to the conservatives. Uh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> and people, you know, tomorrow is Tuesday when we have our crack strategy panel, and we will still be talking about this and uh, having a look and see also the situation on the ground. Has anything changed? <laughs> And I better call my friends in Ottawa to see how they are managing with all of this. And that is all the time we have for today. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.